Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Wednesday, September the 7th, 2022, and as so often, the world's two most uh, photogenic dictators are in the news, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping of China. They're apparently going to meet next week in, of all places, Uzbekistan. I don't quite know why they're going to Uzbekistan and what they're going to talk about. But um, some people, at least in the American media, think that this trip by Xi Jinping is important. Of course, we're in America, at least, tend to be obsessed with Putin and Ukraine. So Xi Jinping, even if he is perhaps the senior partner in this relationship, is often uh, overlooked uh, in terms of Putin. But not everyone overlooks uh, Xi Jinping. Uh, Foreign Affairs uh, this week has a piece, which they've had before, many other American periodicals, on the weakness of Xi Jinping how hubris and paranoia threaten China's future. We've heard that one before. It doesn't necessarily seem to have had much of an impact on its future. Uh, Meanwhile, China's zero COVID bind, according to the New York Times, has no easy way out. And once again, uh, Xi Jinping and his regime are locking down Chinese cities in their zero COVID strategy. So what to make of this? new Chinese state? Is it that new? What's its innovation? Uh, And what, if anything, is its morality? There's an important new book out, co-authored by my guest today, Josh Chin, uh, with his co-author, Lisa Lin. They're both uh, reporters at the Wall Street Journal. Surveillance State, Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, Uh, Josh is the bureau chief, I think, of the Wall Street Journal in China, even if he was expelled in 2020. So he currently is talking to us from Utah, and he is mostly based in Seoul, Korea. Uh, Josh, welcome. Congratulations on the new book. Thank you very much. State. Um, Not the first or the last, Josh. What's original about the surveillance state that Xi Jinping is, is building? Uh, right. Well, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, um, state surveillance is basically as, as old as, as states themselves. Um, you know, going back to the ancient Romans uh, who, who collected census data uh, in order to uh, levy taxes and, 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 um, and conscript people into the army. Uh, what's different in China is that the, the, what the Communist Party is doing now is carrying out uh, a installing a surveillance state that is bigger than anything that's happened before, both in terms of scale and ambition. Um, and, you know, talking about scale, uh, you know, China right now is home to roughly 400 million surveillance cameras. Um, you know, many of them are able to automatically recognize faces in a crowd in real time. Uh, there's nearly a billion smartphones tracking uh, their users' movements, and that's data that the Chinese government can access quite easily. Uh, there are online digital payment systems that that every year log ten times the the volume of transactions of Mastercard. 
And, you know, no other government in history has had remotely this level of potential insight into, into human behavior. Uh, and then also, you know, thanks to advances in AI, they can also sift through that data at, at just blazing speeds. Um, and when we talk about ambition, you know, what, what the Communist Party wants to do with this data, you know, party scholars in Beijing believe that it's, it's possible to combine it, um, you know, with AI to create something close to a perfectly engineered society, basically where, where problems and threats are predicted and eliminated before they arise. It's almost as if they read Jeremy Bentham, uh, the man who perhaps invented the notion of surveillance in his panopticon. You talk about all these cameras and all this AI, Josh, I'm not going to disagree with you on that, but we did a show three years ago now with Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote, of course, the famous Age of Surveillance Capitalism. And the surveillance capitalism she discusses or reveals in her new book um, isn't that different in the United States from China, is it? There's still the same amount of cameras, the same amount of um, the same amount of uh, data, uh, the same amount of um, surveillance broadly. I mean, it may not be quite the state, but what's the difference between the surveillance capitalism being pioneered in the United States and the one in China? That is a, you know, what is the difference? I think actually there are, as you say, a lot of, a lot of similarities. And in fact, um, what is really interesting about the Chinese surveillance data is, is that a lot of it is based on technology that was invented in Silicon Valley. Uh, and, it, and it was built with help from, from Silicon Valley companies, um, companies like Intel, uh, Cisco, Sun Microsystems, uh, NVIDIA, you know, all these big names have been... Let me jump in, Josh. Yeah. Uh, when you, and, and, and you use, I'm going to throw words back at you, you said with help. Is that right. conscious of companies like Intel? Did they know what they were doing in terms of helping uh, China build its surveillance state? Uh, yes, actually. Uh, we, um, you know, one of the things we found when we were looking into, into this is, is Intel, uh, just to take an example, uh, was in very early on in in the uh, into this industry as it was just taking off, sort of in the early I think around 2010. You know when digital cameras were far, were finally starting to take over. Networked digital cameras were taking over for for um, for analog cameras as, as surveillance tools. Uh, and Intel, you know, the, their venture capital arm found one of the leading startups doing this work in China that had that had uh, strung together cameras for surveillance during the Beijing Olympics in 2008. And, you know, with Intel's help, uh, they became one of the leading digital surveillance firms. And if you look at, at you know, if you look at the, the statements from Intel at the time, you know, they were they were they were cheering their uh, their foothold in what they said was you know, going to be a really big industry and that would help them sell a lot of chips. And in fact, it did help them sell a lot of chips. Uh, you had an interesting piece as well in uh, the Wall Street Journal recently um, featuring your book. One of the photos for people watching is of Alibaba's city brain visualizing AI to patrol traffic in Hangzhou. I know that the, the city of Hangzhou, you consider one of the, the laboratories of this new kind of surveillance state. Um, is, are there relationships between companies like Alibaba and the Intels and the Cisco's of, uh, of, of American tech? Um, you know, the, the main, there are relationships. The main relationship is a hardware relationship at this point. Um, uh, so it is Intel, companies like Intel, NVIDIA, uh, Western Digital, Seagate, you know, pr they provide hardware for, for a lot of the surveillance. Um, 
And, you know, um, that's actually one of the areas where the U.S. government is, is, is trying to step in at this point and kind of deny China access to 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 the to American hardware. Do you agree well. with that? Uh, you talk about American government coming in. Uh, Gina Raimondi recently, who's the American uh, U.S. Congress Co Commerce Secretary, she's actually been on the show. She's a very impressive woman, and we should run for president. Uh, she is barring advanced tech or trying to. Bar advanced tech firms from building Chinese factories for 10 years. Are you in agreement with, uh, with Raimondo and, and the Biden administration on this stuff? Um, well, I mean, I, I mean, as a, as a, as a journalist, I try not to take sides. I mean, I think that if you well, are, you are taking sides, Josh, this, this book takes sides. You can't, I, I mean, you can't have it both ways. Right. Well, I mean, I think, I think what we try to lay out in this book is, is, is how the, the surveillance state works. Um, and, you know, our aim is for people to be to be sort of informed about the way it works and which which includes, um, as we as we document, sort of threats to democratic values. Right. And and uh, and, and U.S. To, 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 you know, use, to, 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 to use a euphemism. <laughs> threats right. to Democratic values. What does that mean? Um, well, I think, you know, the the, the, the surveillance state, what, what China is building right now is a is a system that they believe is actually capable of, of challenging democracy right that is that, that that is more efficient uh at not just identifying problems but 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 solving them before they even arise right and they can give people lives of sort of convenience and safety uh, right. it's an alternative model um how would you distinguish that model and 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 this you you describe it as having two faces china surveillance state uh, it's a, a new social contract which isn't that new. I mean, it's happened lots of times in history of a perfectly engineered society for people who don't resist. How would you distinguish this kind of perfectly engineered society or, or, or with the intention of it being perfectly engineered from the one, for example, being pioneered in Singapore? Is it quite similar? Because Singapore is not a democracy uh, and its smart city is a kind of surveillance state, isn't it? Right, I, I think actually that's a that's a that's a very good good comparison. Um, in some ways, Singapore is 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 a model for what what China uh, has has wanted to do in the past politically. They the Communist Party leadership used to look to Singapore uh, as an example, and and it's true the Singaporean government does use a lot of these same technologies and in similar ways. I think the difference is that the Communist Party in China has still has vastly more power to determine. Uh, how politics and how how social control unfolds in China than than the Singaporean government or any other government really does. I mean, it has just immense resources, uh, both in terms of data and, and obviously political power and, the, and just the size of its bureaucracy. Um, and and you're right that this is this is you know countries like East Germany, uh, Soviet Russia, they've had these utopian dreams in the past, right? The the, the dream itself of, of a engineered society is nothing new. What's new is that we have tools now, uh, you know, with with deep learning, in particular, uh, and, and just quantities of data that actually make it uh, plausible. I think for the first time. How much of this depends on Xi, who exactly this Xi Jinping is? Uh, I'm doing an interview next week with uh, no, sorry, next month with Adrian Geige, a German journalist who has one of the first biographies of the leader. Um, what's your take on him? Is he some wannabe Stalin or is he 
simply someone who wants a quiet, comfortable life. He wants the Chinese people to behave themselves, get rich, and everyone can be happy. I mean, if you look at if you look at what what Xi Jinping says, I think it's clear that he's not just some uh, someone who wants to lead a quiet life. Uh, he's uh, he's incredibly ambitious, probably the most ambitious leader we've seen in China in at least twenty years, maybe thirty years. Um, and he's a you know he's a I believe he's a true believer uh, in 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 communism in the Communist Party mission. He and he well capitalist has... communism. I mean, he's not a Marxist, well, not a Leninist Marxist. He doesn't believe in nationalizing property or anything, does he? No, no. I mean, it's, you know, they, they talk about it as, as socialism with Chinese characteristics, right? Of course, and who knows what exactly that means. But it is a system in which the state has ultimate control and, and increasingly is wielding that control. Uh, it is, um, you know, it is reinserting its life itself into the lives of, of individual Chinese citizens in a way we just haven't really seen basically since the Mao era. And, it, and because of these technologies, it can do it in a way that is uh, just unprecedented. Some people will be watching this, Josh, and thinking, oh, he's a Wall Street Journal writer, works for the Murdoch Press, anti-Chinese, uh, like Aaron Friedberg, who was on the show recently, why China, not Russia, according to Friedberg, is our greatest threat. He has a new book out, A Contest for Supremacy, a new kind of Cold War text. Wall Street Journal often runs anti-Chinese pieces. They're not Trumpian in there distaste for China, but lots of pieces, for example, one I found from uh, September 6th, which uh, is yesterday, uh, about how Chinese leaders haven't learned the right lessons from history. How would you respond to the fact, now I know you may work for the Wall Street Journal, but you don't work for, for Murdoch himself, but how would you respond to a, a critique that this is just more Cold War 2.0 rhetoric? Right. Well, um, I, would, I would like to point out that the, uh, the, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the opinion pages and news pages have a, have a very extreme, impenetrable firewall. So we have nothing to do with what, with what they write. And, and like the, the Great we... Wall of China, yeah. <laughs> even, even taller. Um, <laughs> I think, uh, and more effective, uh, actually. Um, uh, well, look, I mean, I think, you know, the way that, that my co-author Lisa and I approached this is, is the way that we've approached every, all of our coverage of China, which is to is to understand what's happening there, right? I mean, it's 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 the world's largest country by population, it's second largest economy. It's an incredibly important um, player in business, in politics, uh, and technology. And you know, we want to know what's happening there. Uh, and if you look at the, you got thrown out in twenty twenty. I mean, you're you're banned. So how can you know what's happening there? Oh well, you know uh, there there is social media. Uh, there is uh, it is possible to pick up the phone. Uh, cameras, right, Josh? You can look there at what's cameras. going on. There's actually, you know, there's also a lot of uh, there's a there's an amazing amount of government data that is available on the internet if you know where to look. And actually, that that a lot of that data is <laughs> underpins um, underpins our reporting for this book. It's which is based on thousands and thousands of pages of looking at government. But are there really? I mean, it's all very well thinking. There are a couple of brilliantly ambitious scientists who want to put all this data together. But it's hard, isn't it? I mean, they may have all this information, all these cameras, all this surveillance, but it's hard to actually put all the pieces together and build an effective surveillance state. Yeah, that is absolutely 100% uh, correct. Uh, and, you know, one of the things we discovered, actually, in, in all of this is that, actually, that, that state surveillance in China is... Uh, is as much a propaganda project as a technology project. Mm, um, interesting. 
Yeah, the, I mean, the, you know, we looked at the state media is actually, you know, at first when we, we started doing this reporting, we were sort of shocked at how we expected the government to really push back on it, right? The, the, you know, previous reporting I'd done on China, uh, you know, had gotten a lot of pushback from the government. In this case, they actually didn't, right? They were sort of happy to promote this idea of, the, of, the, of themselves as being all-seeing, right? And you would look in, uh, in Chinese state media and there'd be story after story of, of facial recognition finding lost children or, or, or tracking down fugitives who'd been missing for years. And when we looked into these stories, a lot of them turned out to be, if not uh, outright fabrications, then, then, then major exaggerations. And, I, and the conclusion we came to is that, you know, mostly state surveillance works by just persuading people that it works. Right. So that's the Benthamite uh, argument is you don't really need the cameras. You just need people to think that there are cameras there and people will behave themselves. That's exactly right. I mean, that's the, you know, Bentham is the, he invented the, panopt the Panopticon, right? The, the circular prison where the prisoners. And never of course he did it uh, as, a, as, a, as a project for Catherine the Great, who uh, I'm sure Xi Jinping is a wannabe Catherine the Great, even if he won't wear a skirt. <laughs> that, is, that is possible. That is possible. Um, but yeah, that's really how that's really how this works. I mean, you know, it's interesting. People think of China as a police state, but actually the, the ratio of police to regular citizens in China is something around one to 700, which uh, is less than the U.S., where it's one to 400. Right. There was a, and, I, and I took the photo out, but there was an interesting photo in your Wall Street Journal piece of uh, Chinese policemen on bicycles. They could have been in San Francisco. Uh, not that we have police in San Francisco, but uh, uh, so what you're saying is that the police in China aren't quite as fearsome as perhaps some people imagine? I think, well, they can be very fearsome. I mean, if, if you're talking about places like, like Xinjiang, the, the remote region in, in, in northwest China where the Communist Party is, is trying to forcibly assimilate Muslim minorities, I mean, they're, they're incredibly fierce there. Um, in other parts of the country, you know, they can be abusive um often but there aren't that there just aren't that many of them there aren't as many as you would you would think and uh you know 1.4 billion people is a lot of people uh and even the communist party you know which has 90 million members still only represents a fraction uh of that population and it's so and it's difficult difficult to control so you know but if you can convince or persuade those the majority of those people that they are being watched uh that their behavior is being analyzed um, and, and rated and and that you know by misbehaving, they could they could end up uh, in trouble. Uh, then then you've you've gone a long way towards towards exercising that control. I want to come back to the Chinese people, who I think are the most interesting and important piece of this whole story. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, in September of 2020, I did an interview with another German journalist, Kai Strittmatter, who has a similar book to yours, uh, We Have Been Harmonized, Life in China's Surveillance State. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the book, but what is it about your book that adds to the work of people like Strip Matter? Right. I think, I mean, uh, I have read Kai's book and I think, um, you know, it has a lot of really incisive observations. I think our book is, is benefits from being uh, from, well, first of all, from taking a little bit longer, it took us it took us three years to finish it, and and the reason it did is because we just we dove very deeply into into the into the documentary evidence uh, in addition to interviews, right? I mean, we talked to a lot of people in China, in Xinjiang, and Hangzhou, Beijing, Shanghai, but we also uh, we really dove into into the documentary evidence to try to back this up. As What's much your as background, Josh? Uh, I know you live in Utah. You're based in. Uh... 
Korea. You have at least half a Chinese name. Do you have Chinese background yourself? I am. I am actually, I am half Chinese, um, uh, but I was born, born and raised in the U.S. And China, and, and I assume you speak fluent Chinese and all that sort of thing. Uh, as as uh, I would, know, I don't think anyone would. Uh, it's hard to claim fluency in Chinese, but I can I can get by. Uh, we did a show with uh, Amelia Pang uh, on Chinese slave labor camps. She has an interesting book out, Made in China. I, I know you make these labor camps also an important piece of your narrative of this surveillance state. Um, how much is Chinese capitalism one big camp for slave labor? Um, how, how's, how much is that the case? You know, I think uh, the Chinese economy is extremely, I mean, it's massive, right? And extremely complex. And, and it is really hard to, to sort of uh, categorize it um, in, in one sentence. It is certainly the case in Xinjiang that, that slave labor is happening, and there is prison labor um, in China, as there is in the United States, uh, actually. Um, but it's you know it's it's a very complex economy, and it's undergoing a, t a tremendous amount of change because of Xi Jinping right now. He's trying to remake China's economy and sort of sort of trying to harden it. Right? He wants uh, he wants the economy to sort of be based on real things. Um, you know, he wants you know building chips, building cars. Um, self-driving cars, that sort of thing. Uh, he, and he's actually recently undertaken a major crackdown on the internet firms, which he thinks are, you know, a little bit frivolous um, and maybe a little bit too too uh, powerful for their own good. Uh, As Joe so, Biden would like to do, but doesn't have the power, right? Um, certainly, China is is, is uh, leading the pack in government regulation or a, a attempted government regulation of internet firms. They actually just. Um, just recently published details on on the core algorithms for their major major tech companies is I think it's probably the the, the leading government effort to to regulate algorithms um, whether they can actually pull that off whether that's even technologically feasible uh, we'll have to see but but they certainly have that ambition Josh I was looking through the Wall Street Journal pieces on China recent pieces some written by you some involving some of your the people who work for you, and they all seem to be about China's economy slowing down. Bad news on the China economic front. What's your take on the current state, not of the surveillance state project, but of the economic project to really compete effectively with the U.S.? Um I should I should preface this by saying uh, I am not a I'm not an economics reporter, but working for the Wall Street Journal, I sort of inevitably uh, end up paying attention to it. I think uh, you know China's economy is going through uh, an historic uh, moment. It's 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 slowing down immensely. A lot of that is the result of the zero COVID strategy that, that Xi Jinping has implemented. Some of it, though, is deliberate. You know, China's economy had a lot of structural problems. I mean, it was growing. Uh, double-digit growth for, for for two decades almost, and um, and it, it you know the side effect of that was a lot of imbalances in the economy, a huge amount of debt, um, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of savings, but very little of it in the hands of, of actual Chinese people, of actual consumers, and so part of what's happening in, in China's economy is an effort by by Xi Jinping to to address those imbalances, which is inevitably going to cause a lot of pain. 
Um, and and they're you know economists aren't really sure whether he's actually going to be able to pull it off. It could, I mean, it could end up being being disastrous, but we just have to see. Uh, but it certainly is going to affect you know how China is able to compete with the U.S. There were some there were a lot of predictions that that China's economy would soon overtake the U.S. economy as the number one economy in in, in the world. And now they're they're that opinion seems to be shifting, and some people think it may never actually overtake the U.S. economy. We did also a show uh, with um, Joanna Chu on the human cost of China's growth, China Unbound, a new world disorder, lots of books written in this on this front. How much is the human cost affecting ordinary people on the ground uh, in your sense? I mean, you know, you, there's two narratives, just as, as you suggest that um, there are two faces of, of China's surveillance state, there are two ways of reporting what's happening in China. On the one hand, the people going from terrible poverty to middle-class existence. On the other hand, this perpetual uh, uncertainty and churning and slave labor. What's your sense broadly? I know it's a hard thing to generalize Hmm. about the human cost in China itself of China's growth. Uh, well, you know, one of the remarkable things about China, one of the reasons I've, I've spent 15 years there as a reporter, is that Chinese people have undergone more historic change in in the in the space of a couple of generations than most populations undergo in multiple, you know, in in a hundred years. Um, it's you know they've they've gone from a planned economy to a market economy. They've uh, you know they underwent the the Cultural Revolution just before that. Uh, they had Tiananmen Square, and, that, and then the huge amount of, of growth that followed after afterwards, and now COVID. I think inevitably in that process, a lot of individual lives get crushed, and uh, but also a lot of individual lives. You know, a lot of people end up lead, leading remarkable lives. It's a, um, you know, it's a it's a fast moving and really difficult uh, country to to find your way through, um, and. Uh, and I think right now they're in a they're in a, a moment of, of extreme uncertainty, right? You know, up until now there was this sense that there was this sort of social contract, right, where the Communist Party would deliver growth, and and you and you had this potential to get rich, and and that was enough for most people to sort of yeah you know, accept Communist Party rule, right? If, if if there was a possibility that their lives were going to get better, even if their lives weren't actually getting better, right, as you say, rather than entice citizens with the possibility of riches, Xi offered them a predictable world in which thousands of algorithms neutralize threats and sand away friction. Right, exactly. So that's the new that's their new project, right? Is they have to they can't promise riches anymore. They can't they can't dangle uh, this this possibility of, of of continuously improving material conditions. So they have to come up with something else. And and this, the surveillance state is part of that answer, right? They, if, you know, they're trying to, especially in, you know, in wealthier cities on the coast where you have a kind of, you have middle-class populations, you know, that, you know, that are, they've done fairly well under the Communist Party. And in order to keep them on side, now the party wants to sort of smooth out their lives, right? Make them predictable, you know, reduce traffic, optimize healthcare, um, th- those sorts of things so that they just don't have anything to complain about. The FT ran a piece about how China's fed up uh, pandemic workers are fed up. They're not treating us like human beings. To what extent um, this new middle class that you're talking about, to what extent have they inherited 
the culture of living under Mao and, and a real tyranny? Do they understand? Is there a culture there which can live in a quote-unquote surveillance state, know when to talk, when to switch the cameras off, when to avoid the cameras, when to go out into the street to have honest conversations? Right. Well, I think um, I mean I think it depends on who who you're who you're talking about in China. I mean, there's certainly dissidents um, in you know all, in China through the years who have developed those those skills. Right. They they, they are very savvy at at, uh, at trying to evade detection. Um, that's getting more and more difficult. Um, I mean, it's it's more difficult than it's ever been. Obviously, with the with the tools the Communist Party has in their possession for for regular people, I think there's. You know, there's always a, a perception in China that, that the Communist Party has immense power and control. Uh, and I don't, I don't think, you know, anyone in, in China doubts that or, 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 as we were saying earlier, you know, doubts the ability of the Chinese government to sort of peer into their lives. And I think, you know, I personally had this experience uh, when I got kicked out of China, uh, you know, of this weight lifting off my shoulders that I hadn't even really been aware of uh, when I was in Beijing, uh, you know, this just kind of constant low-grade paranoia that sort of buzzes in the back of your mind, right? When you're you're in your home and you just assume that the things you're saying there are uh, could be listened in on. Uh, and I remember stepping off the plane in Japan, which was the only country with open borders at the time because it was the beginning of the pandemic, and just and just realizing that I didn't have to worry about that anymore. So I think a lot of Chinese people live with that. And finally, Josh, I, I know this is a dumb question, but lots of my questions are dumb. Um, do you get any sense of, I mean, we're not going to have Tiananmen Square again, but is it conceivable that there will be a, a, a concrete rebellion against this surveillance state in China? Is um, are we missing the real story, in other words, by focusing on other parts of the world? Is something brewing once again in China? Um, I think I think if you look back at Chinese history, uh, the Communist Party has has mismanaged things really terribly at, at various times, and 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 the, and, the, and people in China have not rebelled. I think people in China have a, a pretty high pain tolerance, but I do think that what's happening in China is. A major story. Um, I mean, the, the model that China is trying to create has a huge amount of appeal around the globe. They've been exporting this technology and the, the ideas that go with it to uh, to eighty more than eighty countries around the world by by one count, including several democracies. And this is a you know especially, especially in Africa, right? So yeah, yeah. So they're competing with the U.S. It, for better or worse, it is a new Cold War. And uh, Josh's new book, which he co-authored with uh, his colleague at the Wall Street Journal, Lisa Lin, Surveillance State Inside China's Quest to Launch a New Era of Social Control, is a really important new book. I think a very fair book about what actually is happening and not happening in China. It's a much more sophisticated, I think, take than, than, than either the people, either the China pessimists, China's haters, or the apologists. So congratulations, Josh, on that new book. Um, it's just out. W what else are you reading these days? Um, so I mean, since, since I think people who are listening to this are probably uh, going to go out on a limb and assume they're interested in China, um, I'll mention two books. One is um, that I just started now. It's called The Backstreets, which is a, a short novel by uh, Perhat Torsen, who's a Uyghur writer from Xinjiang who was uh, who disappeared into the the internment camps there in 2018 
I think it's the first ever Uyghur novel to be translated into English, mm. um, which makes it pretty significant. And it tells the story of a, of a Uyghur migrant who travels to Xinjiang's capital, Urumqi, to, to escape poverty, which is a really common, common story there. Uh, has some shades of, of, of Camus and Kafka. It's, it's uh, sort of existentialist. Mm uses winter pollution as a as a multifaceted uh, metaphor for what it's like. Did the Chinese, um, uh, did they use the, the Uyghurs in a, as a sort of the beta experiment for this surveillance state, do you think? You know, that's, that is a, that is a debate that a lot of people have, whether, whether Xinjiang is, is an experiment or whether uh, it, it was like the, the, the end state uh, of the, of surveillance. I mean, what, what I can say is that you have you have definitely seen the systems that are that were implemented in Xinjiang being rolled out in other parts of China now, especially during the pandemic. Um, that was I mean that was one of the most striking personal experiences I had at the beginning of the pandemic in early 2020 was watching all of these residential camp uh, compounds in, in Beijing get get sort of locked up so that they only had one entrance, right? And so that every time every everyone who all the comings and goings could be observed by security personnel. And that's something that, that really was first rolled out in Xinjiang. Um, and now you also have, you have these, these health codes, right? That every, basically everyone in China has a health code now that, that measures their exposure risk to, to COVID and it determines where they can travel, uh, if they can travel at all. And that and those, those systems um, and the architecture and the way the data is handled uh, definitely mirror what happened in Xinjiang a couple of years earlier. And final book uh, suggestion, Joe? Yeah, so the, this one is um, uh, on the economy. Since we, we, we talked about this, it's, um, it's a book called The, the Bubble That Never Pops, um, which is a uh, sort of contrarian look at China's economy by, by someone, uh, an economist at Bloomberg named Tom Orlick. Uh, he's actually a, a former colleague of mine at, at the Wall Street Journal, but he is, um, you know, it sort of explains why China's economy has continued to grow despite all of the problems it has, uh, like the immense levels of debt that, that should have crippled it years ago. Um, it's, it's wonky, but it's, I think, really, as, as we discussed, is really important subject matter. Uh, and Tom is a really sort of crisp, entertaining writer who makes it all pretty, pretty accessible. And he, for what it's worth, he still, he still thinks uh, the Chinese government has the, uh, has the sort of knowledge and wherewithal to pull it out.